Praise the Lord. It's a new catchphrase around here. Praise the Lord. If you will, um, what I'd like you to do is open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, page 1370. Once you get there, just uh, put a marker there, put something there because you won't be there till the very end. And then open to, then go back to Proverbs right there in the center of your Bible. And we'll talk for a few minutes from Proverbs and uh, some Old Testament passages will come up on the screen. Then we'll end up in Titus 2. Amen. So just find your way to Titus 2. Then open to Proverbs. All right. Let's pray and then we'll study God's Word. Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you, Lord God, for our brothers and sisters in India. Thank you for our sister Renee and for her boldness for you. And Lord God, now I pray that you will use your Word to transform us, renew our minds, Lord God. As it's intended, may we be open to what you have for us tonight. We thank you for your perfect word. We declare its infallibility and its perfect divine inspiration from you intended for your people. We receive it joyfully tonight. Thank you for it, Lord God. Now use it in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I've uh, been tangling around with uh, the book of Haggai and um, just... In my own personal time, just uh, working through some some things in that book, and that's sort of led me on a, a bit of a journey that we will uh, we won't we won't be in that particular book tonight. But that's sort of the genesis of where what I'm going to share with you tonight came from. I, uh, you know, as all week as I prepared for uh, this Sunday and especially this morning's message, and as I just meditated on that scripture from. Luke 12 and Matthew 6 and all that God had to say. And I was balancing this back and forth with the things the Lord was showing me in the Old Testament. I felt that it would be profitable for us to take a few moments also in light of what I uh, suspected God would share with us through Renee, that we would um, deal with a very, very common issue that is plaguing us uh, today as God's children. Before I tell you what that is, let me just sort of give you some things to consider. For example, um, if you know me, you know that um, if you know me at all, you know that I am a voracious reader. I read, 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 read. But I don't like to read. In fact, I did not grow up reading. I never read as a child. I never saw myself as a gifted reader. I um, merely read what I had to to get through school, did the same thing in college. And so now I read everything I can get my hands on that pertains to the Lord. I do not read anything that is, uh, I don't read novels. I don't read, I'm not, you know, condemning any of that. I'm just letting you know. I don't read magazines, newspapers, novels, romance stories, any. I don't read any fiction at all, but I read until my eyes burn. And why is that? You know, as we uh, have, uh, as a church family, many of you have endeavored to read through the scriptures this year. And I've gotten 
it, not a week has passed uh, this January. I've gotten, I've gotten emails and calls and notes in the mail from people who, for the very first time, are just endeavoring on this journey and, and seeing the, the fruitfulness that's come from it already and talking about the various struggles that they face and the way that they have overcome them or what God's shown them or so on and so forth. And it's been great. But, you know, it's just a, an illustration of the fact that you know, we as a people struggle to do hard things. We struggle to do hard things. And I want to share with you from the Word of God some insights that I believe will uh, help us in the limited time we have tonight to, to really overcome this hurdle. Because if you are here tonight and you, you struggle... You struggle with self-control. You struggle with doing things that uh, are difficult. And you see that, that some people seem to be able to embrace those things. It, it's not easy. Difficult things are always difficult. But some people are able to just persevere in the face of those difficult things and embrace them. I want to help you tonight. That's what my goal is, is to help you. So we're going to begin by looking at a passage of Scripture in Proverbs 23. Proverbs 23. It's a very profitable passage of Scripture. Um, Maybe a bit difficult at times for uh, not to understand, but simply uh, in the application. Uh, Proverbs is very upfront in your face uh, and uh, wonderful to learn practical wisdom, obviously. Proverbs 23, look at verse 19. The Bible says, hear my son and be wise and guide your heart in the way. Do not mix with wine bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. Now, this passage of scripture, if when you're studying Proverbs, the way to study Proverbs is to analyze really in depth what the Bible's saying. I mean, go look at all the details because there's lots of nuances in the wording of of Proverbs. And so what we find is this, uh, this declaration of wisdom to a son not to associate with wine bibbers or drunkards. And there are these people that are described as gluttonous people who eat meat and who are drunk and will come to poverty. But notice what the very last verse says, and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. What I want you to see is that this person is clothed with rags. This is not a one-time scenario. This isn't just be careful about one time falling into this sort of lack of discipline or lack of self-control, but this is a repetitive uh, cycle in a person's life and it leads to poverty. It leads to being clothed with rags. In other words, you'll be unproductive in your endeavors because you have uh, just lived with ease and not applied yourself to doing difficult things. Now, in, uh, later on in, in Proverbs 25, look at Proverbs 25, verse 28. Proverbs 25, 28. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Now, what, what does the Bible mean by who has no rule over his spirit? Now, in the Old Testament, when you see the word spirit, or really in the New Testament, that word 
is, is a word that, that comes from the word for wind or breath. And it means the, the force that's within us, our force or our passion. So when, when the Bible says whoever has no rule over his spirit, rule over his passions, is like a city without walls. So when you lack the ability to control your passions, when you find yourself falling into the ditch of surrendering to that which you desire, you are like, according to the Bible, a city with no walls. Now, a city in the Old Testament was protected by walls. And if a city lacked the protection of walls, it was an utter disaster, as we find, uh, for example, in the book of Nehemiah. And we find that Nehemiah was uh, captive. He was, he was working as the cupbearer to the king. And he finds out the condition of the walls in his homeland around Jerusalem. And he responds in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4. So it was when I heard these words, the words that the walls were broken down, that I sat down and wept and mourned. For many days, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. In fact, Nehemiah goes on to mourn for almost three months over the condition of the walls around Jerusalem. Why is that such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because if there were no walls, there was no security. If there's no security, then there's no justice. If there's no security and no justice, there can be no economy. In other words, when the walls were down around a city, there was literally no boundary. There was no way of protecting it, no way of defining it. And so people lived as if it were the Wild West and everything was sort of just run amok and crazy and whatever you could get away with, you could do. And whatever, you know people you could take advantage of, you could. And a man who lacks self-control is like a city without walls. A woman who cannot control herself is like a city without walls. You have no protection. You have no security. There's no... Your life is literally at the mercy of the chaos around you. Teenagers need to understand the vast, vast value of self-control. When you do not develop self-control, your life is going to be like a city without walls. Now, what do I mean by self-control? Let's define self-control so we know exactly what we're talking about. When I say do hard things, when I say discipline yourself... The Bible says, beat your body into subjection. When I say self-control, here's what I mean. I mean, it's the ability to choose the important thing over the urgent thing. The ability to choose the important thing over the urgent thing at any given time because your passions and desires have been properly ordered. Now, I know that's a lot, but it's important that it's all in there. That self-control is the ability to do what's important, not what is urgent. Because what is urgent will always involve your passion. It will always involve your emotion. And it may not be what's important. But a person of self-control recognizes what needs to get done in light of what may be urgent. And so the first signal that you may have a problem with self-control is that you find it very difficult to say no to urgency. That's a problem. Because the urgent will inevitably lead you astray. 
There must be some order to your passions and desires. We are all passionate. We were created that way. We all have desires. We were created that way. The question is, are your passions and your desires ordered in a such a way that they are in order of what is important? Now, let's kind of break this down so it makes a little bit of sense. How do we gain self-control? In other words, I think that we would agree we all desire self-control. We'd all desire more self-control. We would all agree it is a good thing to be a disciplined person. Now, in Proverbs 18, uh, we'll look at a passage of Scripture that we've sung today, and now we're going to look at it, and we're going to break it down, and we're going to see how it, uh, how it reflects or how it gives us insight into this issue of self-control. Proverbs 18, verses 10 and 11. Here's what the Bible says. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Verse 11. A rich man's wealth wealth is a strong city and like a high wall in his own esteem. Now, what the Bible is saying is that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. What does that mean, the name of the Lord? This is the only reference in the book of Proverbs to the name Yahweh. So the name Yahweh of the Lord, that's important because why is Yahweh here? Why is it Yahweh the Lord? Well, that's the personal name of the Lord that, that, that gives us uh, indication of his character and his, na- his nature and who he is. This Yahweh Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run. They don't walk, they don't travel, they don't skip, they don't do any other thing but run. Why do they run? They run because they're in trouble. They run because they need refuge. We run when we are afraid. We run when we are in danger. We run when we are overwhelmed. We run when we recognize that the chaos around us is taking control of our lives. But the fool, the fool doesn't run to... The strong tower. The fool, in contrast, in verse 11, is the person who runs to his own imagination. In other words, what 11 says is that the rich man, he he uses his wealth as a fortified city. His wealth is his protection. And what he does is he imagines that it has a wall that is too high to scale. That this wall in his imagination is what's protecting him. But in essence, it's merely his imagination. There is no wall. This ability to, to run to something other than God. We've all perfected this skill. And what happens when we do this? What happens when we run? See, we all find ourselves in situations where we need to run. The question is, what do we do? And who do we run to? And whenever we run to something other than God we will inevitably wind up in bondage or addiction or disappointment or all three. And here's how that works. In other words, when you are under pressure, then you deal with that pressure or that stress by maybe turning to a substance. A substance will temporarily relieve the pressure or the stress. But over time, the substance begins to create a new problem and a new pain. And then you need the substance to take care of the pain that's created by the substance. In other words, what starts out with pressure, what starts out with stress, turns into bondage or addiction and always leads to disappointment. 
Now, you can take the same theory and apply it to almost any area of your life. When you find yourself in pressure, under pressure or in stress, you if you and I run to something other than God, that thing will inevitably become a crutch and then... The crutch creates its own problems that we in turn need another crutch to deal with those problems and we find ourselves in bondage. And what happens is we we start running like a rat in a wheel around in circles and we wonder why we're not getting anywhere because we're running to our imagination. We've imagined that this pill or this person or this job, or this possession, or this relationship, or this you fill in the blank, will give us refuge from our stress or relief from our trouble. But in fact, it will not. So how do we correct this? How do, how do we tonight, if we said, okay, how do we do hard things? How do we, how do we wake up tomorrow... And begin the process of what has plagued us for years. How does that become not just endurable, not just doable, but how do you, how do you get to the place where you embrace it, where you rejoice in it? How does that happen? How does it happen that someone, you see, we, we, can just, we can just sort of explain things away by saying, well, a minute ago we, we heard from somebody who is clearly zealous and excited about what she experienced in India. But I remember when she wouldn't even pray in front of people. And now she wants all my time on Sunday night. Now, how does that happen? You see, what we would say is we would say, well, God does that. Well, true. But I mean, how? What, what, do, you, what do you mean? I mean, do you think that the truth be known? If we asked her, do you love being in front of people? No. She's still the same person, but something has changed. She's able to embrace what was once hard. How does that happen? What is, the, what is the process? Okay, I'm going to give you two simple things. Number one, you've, you've got to begin by telling yourself the truth. This is the key to this whole entire liberating principle of God is the truth. It's just like this morning. You must tell yourself the truth. We are prone to lie and to believe our own lies. We can convince ourselves of anything. 90% of our problems are our failure to believe the truth and our propensity to believe our own lies. That's where our problems come from. So when you run to the name of the Lord, if that is a, a strong tower, if He is a refuge, if, if we run there and we're safe, well then, what does that mean? We're running to His, to what? To who? His, his name, what does the Bible say? The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Hmm. The name. How is the name a strong tower? What does the name in the Bible mean? Your name in the Bible is directly related to your character, to your nature. 
that whenever someone in the Bible's character changes, God changes their name to match their character, right? So God says, you run to the name of the Lord. You run to the nature of the Lord. You run to the character of the Lord. In other words, you need to know the truth about who you run to. You can't just make up an exaggeration or some imaginary God that you're going to run. That doesn't work. You need to know the truth. You need to tell yourself the truth about this God. That is, is just so very important. The Bible always, always uses names as vivid expressions of the character and nature of the person to which it's describing. So this means that we've got to remind ourselves of who he truly is. Now, let me show you an example of that that we studied uh, several months ago in Luke chapter 8 in a very familiar passage of Scripture where Jesus calms the storm. Remember that passage of Scripture? I'll read it to you. In Luke chapter 8, the Bible says, As they sailed... Jesus fell asleep and a windstorm came upon the lake and they were, the boat was filling with water and they were in jeopardy. And they came to him and they awoke him and they said, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water and they both ceased and they were calm. And then he said something to them. Now here's what I want you to see. I want you to see that they're in the boat with Jesus. They've seen all that Jesus can do. That Jesus' power is not a mystery to them. Jesus' capacity is not uh, something that they're wondering about. They've seen Jesus with their own eyes in their presence do unbelievable things. In fact, no one on that boat has any reason at all to doubt that Jesus could do anything he wanted to do. And yet in this moment, they panic. Why? Because they gave in to the urgent. It's exactly what they did. They, they panicked. They forgot what was true. They forgot what they knew about the character and nature of God. If they had known the truth, if they had, had, had focused themselves and reminded themselves about what they had seen God do in the past, they would have realized that a thousand tornadoes couldn't harm a hair on their head. That they literally had nothing to fear. There was no possible way they could have been injured. But they panicked. See, they gave in to the chaos around them. And then Jesus responds to them with a very interesting statement. He says, where is your faith? See, he didn't say, oh, you don't have any faith. He loved to say, you have little faith. He said, where is your faith? You see, they have faith. But it's in the wrong thing. You see, their faith was in themselves to panic and get themselves out of trouble. Which is so interesting to me because how many times do we, in this fit of panic, immediately, what is our default? Self-preservation. We go right to our own strength and our own power and our own ability. And something happens and suddenly it's the urgent that takes over and we completely and utterly forget all the things that we know about God. You see, the critical step in developing self-control is telling yourself the truth about who God is. When you feel like you are in some chaotic situation, you must remind yourself the name of the Lord is a strong tower. 
And what does his name tell you about him? So that's the first step. The second step is you've got you've to convert your soul with love. You've got to kill that thing inside of you and that thing inside of me that wants to, to follow our passions. You've got to convert that to love. Now here's what I mean by that. In Genesis 29, we see the story of Jacob working for Laban to earn the right to marry Rachel. Remember that story? And the Bible says something very interesting that will really clear this up for you. The Bible says in verse 20, Jacob served seven years. He worked seven years for Laban in order to earn the right to marry Rachel. The Bible says that they seemed only as a few days to him because of his love for her. Now, what does that tell you? Do you understand what I'm saying? You see the power of love, the power of of converting your soul unto love, that you could work. Look, I mean, just think in, in light of what I'm saying about self-control. Here's a man who's been swindled, but who continues to work for seven years. Hard labor. And it seems like days. How is that possible? Because when you're motivated by love, you have this unbelievable capacity to be able to overcome obstacles. It just, it's, it's unreal what the power of love does in our hearts and in our lives. Now think about Jesus. There's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, sweating drops of blood. Lord, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. He has an out. Do you see he has an out? In that moment, he's facing the most difficult thing that anyone's ever done. And he has an out. But does he take it? Why? Love. You see what love does? So here's my question. I hate to read. You see what love does? I don't want to stay up half the night praying for people who don't even know it. I don't want to read and read and read and study and study and study. I don't want to do that. I don't want to sacrifice. I'm normal just like you. But love compels the human soul to springboard past those urgent things around us and to see what matters. You see, the thing is, is that no matter who you are, no matter what you're facing, there's always going to be an out. And this is the thing, is that when will we no longer... Be ruled by the shortcut. Be ruled by the option. When? What will it take? What will it take to to just go forward for the glory of God? What would it take? Why, Why is it so marvelous 
the cool deep would be willing to give his life for the gospel. Why? Why are we astonished by that? Isn't the gospel worth it? That he would ride on a bus with no heat until his legs were sore. Isn't the gospel worth it? Why is it that he doesn't complain? Because no one recognizes the sacrifices that he makes. Because people don't, don't congratulate him or, you know, pat him on the back continuously. Because why isn't he reminding everyone around him that he's the only one and that no one else is doing that and that he doesn't seem to have the help that he has? Why? You see, we have this amazing capacity as God's people to do hard things. He hardwired that into us. But the New Testament still astonishes us. Take up your cross. It just throws us. Well, well, what do you mean? Well, what is that? What am I going to have to do? What am I going to have to give up? What's going to be the cost? What's going to be the... So here's what I want you to do. I want you to read the New Testament with the new lens. I want you to read the New Testament from now on with the lens that whenever you come across a passage of Scripture, whenever you read something like that the, 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 the gospel is going to divide, it's going to bring hatred into families, it's going it's to bring... You can't, you can't look back from the plow, that you're going to love your enemies. When you read something that just throws you. It just throws you. You read it and you think, well, what does that mean? How can that be true? Why is God saying that? Here's what I want you to think. Couldn't it be true? Couldn't it be true that the God that we serve with the nature and character that he's revealed to us in his word, that he called us to do something, but he hardwired in us the ability to do it. I mean, isn't it true? That if love, if love would enable us to to conquer all obstacles, then what can't we do in light of what we've been shown? Titus chapter 2. Beginning in verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Now, I want you to just see something here. What the Bible's saying is that there's something that's teaching us, something that's enabling us, something that's calling us to do something hard. Because I don't know about you, but when you read something like this, does it just push on you a little bit? How are you doing? How are we doing with the worldly lusts? And are we living soberly and righteously and godly in this present age? Are we doing a good job of that? Are you just seeing this rampant outbreak of godliness all around you? People seeming to embrace all the hard things the Bible has to say. How are you to do this? For the grace of God. 
for the favor that was merited to you that you couldn't earn, that you couldn't get. For the free gift grace of God, it brings salvation. It's appeared to all men. It's been received by us and it teaches us that we can do anything in light of what's been done for us. That we don't... We don't stand here or sit here tonight at the mercy of our desires. We don't, we don't live by the beck and call of the chaos that goes around us. That we've got to stop making excuses and rise up as God's people and say, in light of what Christ has done, in light of what He's called us to do, it must be true. It must be so that He's wired us to be able to accomplish it. It would be child abuse to do any other thing. To think that, that somehow this was some unreachable, unattainable call. No. But how? How? How are you going to do hard things? How? How do you, how do you discipline yourself to keep going when you don't want to? To go without sleep when you're tired? To give when you're broke. To serve when you're, when you're just worn out. To love when you feel like you're just completely used up. How? Keep reading. Look at verse 13. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appear, appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Not doomed to good works. Not forced into slavery of good works. Zealous for good works. What would happen if we became zealous for good works? You see, this is what love does. This is what the truth about God and the love that God has shed on our behalf. When you put those two things together, you have an unstoppable force for the gospel. Not this weak and timid and fearful and frightful and every little thing throws us off course. The book of Hebrews says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy, for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. He, he went joyfully to endure the cross. He, despising the shame, that He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why? Why? How could that be joyful? Love. What would happen to you and me? What would happen to the people who work with us, the people who live in our neighborhoods, the people who go to our schools, all the people that we know that are apart from Christ, that we're too ashamed to open our mouth, to take a step, to reach Him for the gospel. What would happen if we began to develop this fearlessness in the love of God and knowing that He is hardwired us to do that which we're most afraid of, that we are not naturally inclined to do, but for Him, we can do it. Listen, I, I am a long way from there. A long way. 
And I am by no means an expert at self-control. But I want you to know something. I will never live my life, never live my life like a city with broken down walls again. Those days are over. He saved me. He redeemed me. He justified me. He took away all the stain of my past. He made me new and right and pure before Him. He declared that I'm His Son. He empowered me with His Spirit. And He called me to do things that aren't easy. But I'm not afraid. I'm not shying. I'm not backing down. I'm not running away. I'm running into whatever fire He calls me. And I want you to run too. Run. Because the world sometimes gets hot and chaotic. And that's okay. Because he's a strong tower. And when you run, make sure you know what you're running to. It's his name. It's his name. That's where the refuge is. Let's stand, bow our heads, and close our eyes. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. God, help us, Lord. Help us tonight to not always feel as if we're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to climb up this mountain, Lord, to get to you in our own strength. Father, God, help us to recognize and realize that, God, you have set us on the mountaintop. You have given us, Lord God, your authority. You have indwelt us with your spirit. Father God, you've called us to do hard things. Lord, may we not be fearful. May we not cower down, Lord God, but may we rise up, Lord. Discipline ourselves to do that which we don't naturally want to do. But in light of what you've done, Lord, because of the truth that we know about you and the love that we have for you, God, I pray that we would all experience what seven years of hard labor that felt like a few days was like. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this people. God, thank you that we can come together and we can be pushed by you and stretched by you. Lord, we embrace what you have to say to us. And we thank you for it. Now, Lord, will you do what only you can do in our lives and for your glory. In Jesus' name.